Hello, and welcome to MGMA Small Talk, where we discuss issues facing practice administrators across the healthcare world. I'm Shannon Geis, staff writer and editor at MGMA, and today I'm speaking with Daniel Pink, a New York Times bestselling author and one of the world's leading business minds. He is the author of five provocative books about the changing world of work, including the long-running bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Drive. As a speaker, he focuses on behavioral science and has delivered more than a thousand lectures. Daniel led one of our most well-attended main stage sessions at MGMA 16, which was called The Cascade Effect, How Small Wins Can Transform Your Organization. He is here with us today to talk a little bit more in depth about that presentation, including new ways of looking at persuasion and why context matters more than content in changing behavior. He will also answer some of the questions from conference attendees that he was unable to get to in San Francisco. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for having me. It's good to be uh, continuing the conversation with MGMA. First off, can you give just a short overview of your presentation from MGMA's annual conference for those listening who may not have been able to attend? Sure. So what I was talking about was some research that I've done and then some other research that I've harvested that I think is really relevant for practice um, uh, uh, administrators, practice executives, practice uh, uh, managers. Um, And it starts with two insights, which is that all of us, no matter what our job is, but particularly folks in your industry, are persuading and influencing all the time. It's a big part of what they do on the job. It's not in their job description. The job description that they have when they took the job doesn't say, you will be spending 70% of your time persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling other people. But the reality is that that's what they do. Um, The second insight, though, is that we're all doing it on a remade landscape. Most of what we know about persuasion, influence, selling stuff, whether you know it's products and services, but in the, in the case of, of your members, really just selling ideas, selling concepts, selling somebody on the idea of selling somebody on the notion of doing something different or doing something in a different way. Most of what we've known about that has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller, again, of the product, the service, the idea, whatever, always had more information than the buyer. Well, in the last 10 years, that's completely changed, and that's a, just such a huge deal. And so, so, um, so now buyers and sellers, again, here we're talking about ideas, concepts, are pretty evenly matched. So the big insight here is we're persuading all the time, but we're doing it on a landscape where the information is balanced. Uh, that's a big deal. So then I turn to, okay, what do you do about it? And here you can harvest this rich body of social science to find some guideposts for how to do this more effectively. You can look at small questions in... Uh, economics, behavioral economics, social psychology, cognitive science, linguistics, and begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to be more effective in this, you know, in this central part of all of our jobs, but on this landscape that, as I said, is completely new. Um, And it turns out that the three qualities that are most important are the new ABCs, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Attunement is the ability to see someone else's perspective, uh, to get out of your own head, see things from someone else's point of view, understand their position, understand what they're thinking, understand what they're feeling, and find common ground. Enormously important. Uh, uh, buoyancy is, how, you know, if we're persuading all the time, we're going to get rejected, and we're going to get rejected a lot. Um, and one person I talked to called it an ocean of rejection. 
So buoyancy is what does the social science tell us about how to stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? Uh, how to make sure that, re that this constant rejection doesn't sink you. And then finally, there is clarity, and clarity has two dimensions. One of them is you used to ha have a persuasive edge if you had access to information, but now everybody has access to information. Uh, and so what's really important is your ability to curate information, to take this welter of information, separate out the signal from the noise, make sense of it, um, explain it in a way that is coherent. Um, it's absolutely you know, so profoundly true in medicine. Is, uh, this is actually one of the areas where medicine has had the, one of the biggest changes. It used to be doctors were the only ones who had any kind of health information. So if you wanted information on health, you had to go to the doctor. Now everybody has information. You can go online and say, you know, why am I coughing? What are the symptoms of a sinus infection? Uh, you know, do I have Lyme disease? And you can then, um, and so patients are now going to doctors armed with information. And so the physicians challenge is to help the patient make sense of all that information to say, this is important. This is not, uh, to put it all, as you said, uh, in your intro, Shannon, to, to give some context for it. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other aspect of clarity is going from problem solving to problem finding, uh, problem, problem solving in a world of smart machines and a world of artificial intelligence is becoming a little bit of a commodity. So if somebody knows exactly what their problem is, they can probably find the solution without you. Where you're more effective as a persuader is when they don't know what their problem is, or as is often the case, they're wrong about their problem. And so, uh, so those are the new ABCs, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. And then I offered some very you know, practical, uh, tactical things that practice managers can do to get a little bit better at their jobs. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about um, that idea of everyone has access to information now. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about how some specific, maybe some specific tips for the way that people can um, adjust to that fact? Yeah, well, okay, so it's a, it's a couple of things. That, um, that's almost at the, that, that's almost at the strategic level rather than at the pure tactical level. I mean, at the strategic level, what you have to what you have to recognize is that being a professional, do, uh, being a professional, being an expert, used to mean that you had access to information that no one else had, um, and that's just no longer the case. That's not what it means to be a professional. That's not what it means to be an expert. Being a professional, being an expert now means being able to actually make sense of this huge body of information that is out there. Being able to look at this, you know, uh, whether in a medical practice. Being able to look at um, um, uh, someone coming in, a good example would be someone coming in. It used to be the practice managers, you know, they knew a lot more about, in, they had access to information about, say, insurance that patients and prospective patients did not. Now the patients are coming in armed with all this information about insurance possibilities. And so the practice manager has to be more of an expert in insurance. Expertise coming from the ability to see the context, see the big picture, separate out what's meaningful, separate out, uh, you know, and, and include or sort of keep in what's separate out what's not meaningful and include in what is meaningful. Um, uh, and, and so uh, it also, you know, there's an attitudinal shift, too, that you see in medicine. I mean, doctors used to be very resentful of patients coming in with information, patients coming in with a printout saying, I know what's wrong with me. I want you to give me, you know, this over-the-counter remedy, and I want you to give me this prescription remedy. Um, and doctors used to resent that. And you cannot resent people who are armed with information. Everybody has that. And 
And what you have to do is, is recognize that in, the access to information has been democratized. But as I said before, real expertise now comes from being able to make sense of that information, to, um, to help to synthesize it, to, uh, to, to, make, uh, to, to bring it to some kind of order, to distill it. That's what, that's what, so on that question, really, it's, it's really a strategic approach to one's career rather than kind of two or three specific things that you can do. That's great. Um, another thing you spoke of um, was the idea of persuading up or persuading uh, down. Uh-huh. And um, can you talk a little bit um, about what situations you would need to do one versus the other? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, um, uh, you know, I think we have a good, it, it sort of depends on where you are. Um, so if you are, you know, a practice executive at a large practice, uh, you, you have people who are reporting to you. Okay. So that would be an example. And, you know, I'm a little bit leery about using the phrase. I mean, I use it. I just want to be self-aware about it, about, you know, up or down, but there are hierarchies in organizations, particularly the larger the organization you have. So let's say that you are a practice executive at a very, very large practice. You're a boss, you're a big boss and you have people reporting to you. And, and so to persuade, and that's a, that's a good example of persuading down. Um, and what the research shows there is, is some very intriguing things about power. Um, um, what, at the risk of going into too long of an explanation, what the research shows pretty clearly is that the more powerful you feel, the worse your perspective-taking skills become. All right? So there's this weird thing that happens when we feel powerful that we, we, we lose some of our ability to see things from someone else's point of view. And you see this in a whole range of things. Um, so you see people who are, I mentioned this in San Francisco, people who are low status in an organization or in society tend to be very good perspective takers because they're not in charge. Yeah, they don't control the resources, so they better know what the people who do control the resources are thinking. Uh, but what happens is that, um, that, that power leads us to lose our capacity to see someone else's perspective. And that, in turn, creates some problems for bosses uh, who, are all, who are often persuading down. And so what they do is they get a kind of – they, they ask somebody to do something. They tell somebody to do something. And maybe they get a little bit of resistance. But in the face of that resistance, they try to be more coercive. Um, and they don't realize that what they're getting from people is kind of a grudging – low-level compliance rather than people being fully engaged in the task. And so, so what the, the takeaway that I offered for folks was, was the following. That you, can, that you can be, if you're a leader persuading down, you can be more persuasive, you can be more effective by reducing your feelings of power. Okay, you, let me say that again. You can be more effective by reducing your feelings of power. And here's a way to think about it. We tend to think of power... Uh, and I mentioned this in San Fran too, as a dial. And when we're, we're bosses and we're trying to get people to do stuff, we, our natural inclination, my natural inclination, is to turn the power up, all right, to be, sort of exert extra power, to feel more powerful in order to get consent. And that's, that's effective sometimes. But we have to recognize that that dial goes the other direction. And you can reduce your feelings of power um, and, and actually get more and actually become more effective. And if you, if you indulge me here for a second, you know, I use it. This is sometimes hard to understand. So I used an example with somebody in the audience, but I use it with you, Shannon. You know, if I were if I were your boss 
um, uh, or let's say you were my boss, okay, and you wanted me to do something, I thought it was a waste of time, I would probably still do it because you're my boss, but I wouldn't do it very well. And if I resisted, you would likely sort of be a little bit more coercive. Say, hey, Dan, you know what? You just got to do this thing. Um, and you could be more effective as a persuader if before this encounter, you, you, you sort of dialed that, your power feelings down one notch, two notches, and said, hey, you know, uh, it's really important for me, Shannon, as a leader, that this guy Pink is all in on this, this assignment. Um, you know, he, he actually has some influence over my ability as a boss to get what I want to get done. You know, the job market is really tight right now. Uh, he could probably get a job somewhere else. At some level, we need him a lot more than he needs us. And by just dialing down those feelings of power in that moment, your, your perspective-taking skills will usually increase. And that, in turn, will say, hey, let me see it from his perspective. Why is he resisting? What can I do to overcome that resistance? Maybe there's an obstacle that I can get out of his way. Maybe I can look at uh, uh, something advantageous, a reason that's advantageous for him to do this thing differently. And so key point here, just to summarize, is that there's this inverse relationship between feelings of power and perspective taking. That's one way that bosses go awry. Their, their power, when they reach a position of power, they lose some of their perspective taking abilities, and that diminishes their effectiveness. And one easy remedy is just every once in a while click down those feelings of power and that will increase the acuity of your perspective taking, especially when persuading down. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so one of the things that we had a lot of questions about um, is the idea of the ambivert um, mm -hmm. as opposed to the introvert or the extrovert. Okay. And I think that's something that really hit people in it, um, you know, really, you know, sparked their curiosity. Interesting. Okay. Um, so a couple of the questions um, that we got from attendees include um, when trying to persuade an introvert or an extrovert, um, is it better to match their style or counter it as an ambivert? Great question. Okay, so let me just take a step back and explain what an ambivert is and why it matters. So we tend to think they're, you know, people either introverts or extroverts. And the truth of the matter is, is that extroversion is a scale. So imagine a scale of extroversion, say between, I mean, the one that they often use is between one and seven. So you give me a, 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 a test like, like Myers-Briggs, not Myers-Briggs, but sort of akin to Myers-Briggs, and it'll give you essentially a number on that spectrum. So for me, for instance, you know, I, I tested about a two and a half, okay? So I'm, an, I'm more introvert, you know, seven is a very strong extrovert, uh, one is a very strong introvert. So I test more introverted than extroverted. I'm not like a super extreme uh, introvert. And um, and ambiverts are people who are kind of in the middle. People sort of like me, you know. That is that is, um, you know, they're not strong extroverts and they're not strong introverts. They're a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like ambidextrous, ambidextrous, ambivert. And this is not some kind of cockamamie made-up term. This is a term that's been in the literature for nearly 100 years. It's just that we have, for whatever weird reason, this very binary approach to introvert and extrovert, when in fact most of us are ambiverts. And it turns out there's some research that shows that ambiverts are the most persuasive uh, people uh, because they're ambidextrous. They, know when to, you know, they, they have the strengths of the extrovert. They're, they can assert themselves. They can be comfortable in social situations. But they have some of the strengths of the introvert. That is, they know when to hold back. They can be also be good listeners. Um, and so that's what an ambivert is. Now, the question has to do with 
uh, when you're dealing with an introvert or dealing with a uh, an extrovert, um, uh, should you counter their tendencies or should you match them? And you know, and in general, okay. So just two quick things here. Number one is that a lot of times you'll get a false reading on people. So don't be sure that you know somebody is an extrovert or somebody is an introvert. Okay. So. Um, it could just be that the situation they're in is forcing them to be extroverted or forcing them to be introverted. Um, but in general, you're better off matching than you are countering. Uh, you're better off taking people where you find them. So, um, so um, um, if you, you know, you're better off doing everything you can to make that person feel uh, comfortable. And so, an introvert, someone who's very introverted, might be more comfortable with moments of silence. Uh, in a conversation. Uh, somebody who's an extrovert, it would drive them crazy. So in general, you're better off matching. Great. Um, another question along these same li- uh, similar lines. Uh, does the extroversion scale show levels of how effectively someone is going to be influenced? Oh, that's a great question. Um, not that I know of. Uh, I don't think that research has been done. So uh, it's a great question, though. I, I think the question really is, you know, are introverts more persuadable than extroverts or extroverts more persuadable than introverts or, and I do not know the answer to that. It'd be a great thing to test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, um, another question that we, we got, um, from an attendee, um, what role do you think EQ or emotional intelligence plays in successful management? Ah, that's a very interesting question uh, for a number of different reasons. So, so there's been sort of a, it's been kind of an evolution in thinking about emotional intelligence. So this is a concept that was introduced by some scholars in really the early 1990s or so. Uh, And it was sort of a, it was pretty revolutionary, pretty big idea. And then it was popularized in a really massive way by a fellow named Daniel Goleman in the late 90s, mid to late 1990s. And so it's been taken very seriously for a long time. There's some uh, very new research showing that we, it might be oversold, all right? That is, it, 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 it is still important, okay? It's still a factor in people's individual success, but it not, isn't necessarily as you know, this kind of all omnipotent force that we once thought it was. So it's important, but other things really matter. Uh, there's, there's some new, some, re, some research showing actually, you know, cognitive skill, they say cognitive skill matters a heck of a lot. Um, uh, there are other kinds of personality traits that also matter significantly. Uh, something like conscientiousness is a very strong predictor of who's going to be successful and who's not going to be. So it's important. But it's not the it's not the be all and end all. The other thing about that that I want to say on emotional intelligence is that when I talk about attunement and perspective taking, that's s- sort of like emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's it's connected to empathy, understanding someone's feelings, and empathy is just enormously important as a personal attribute. I mean, if people were more empathetic, the world would be a better place. Business would be better, but the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, however, attunement is also understanding someone's interests, okay? Uh, not only their emotions. And and you, you had sort of hinted at this before, especially when you're persuading up. Understanding someone's interests is enormously important. Um, 
and and persuading them by appealing to their interests is still really important. And that's something that emotional intelligence, you know, plays a role, but not maybe as big as we once thought. Okay, interesting. Um, we also had a couple of questions uh, regarding the idea of the sea of rejection, the ocean of rejection. Yeah. Um, one is, can you discuss strategies for staying afloat in that? Sure. Uh, one of the best ones, a very enduring piece of research, comes from a fellow named Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania who did a study. This is a while ago. This is now probably 25 years ago. Did a, stu uh, did a study of life insurance salespeople and found the single best predictor of their success was how they explained failure. They had a particular, his words, explanatory style that allowed them to stay afloat in that ocean of rejection. And so Seligman came up with what he calls the three Ps, the three Ps, personal, pervasive, and permanent, personal, pervasive, and permanent. And so when we get rejected, human beings hate rejection, okay? I hate rejection. I get rejected a lot, you know, and, I, and, and, and I'm used to it, you know, intellectually. I like, yeah, it's part of the game. I get it. I get it. I get it. But I still don't like it. And so, you know, it's so so people um, tend to uh, uh, kind of what's what, what some people call catastrophize rejection. They turn it into a, a catastrophe and they say, you know, it's all my fault. It always happens and it's going to ruin everything. And what Seligman says is that these really skilled sellers explain things differently. They made it less personal, less pervasive and less permanent. So they basically rebutted themselves. So if I go in and try to persuade someone and I fail, you know, my tendency might be to say, oh, it's all my fault. And a rebuttal to yourself would be something like, well, is it really all your fault? Okay. Maybe that person just was having a bad day. Maybe that person wasn't going to agree to what you said, regardless of how effective your argument was. Maybe that person has some other kinds of competing interests that prevent her from taking this action. Okay. So that's personal, pervasive. It always happens. You have to check yourself. Okay. Does it always happen? Like every time you try to persuade someone, do they say no? And the answer is no. You know, it's like, oh, no, you've been successful on that before. And then the third one is um, the third P, personal, pervasive, and permanent. You know, again, we hate rejection so much. It's so toxic to us. It feels so terrible. We say, oh, it's going to ruin everything. Mm -hmm. And just the reality check, very few things ruin everything. And so with Seligman, you know, the, the, the technique is to say after a rejection, you know, is it entirely personal? Is it entirely pervasive? Is it, an, is it permanent? And if you look for hard-headed ways to explain why it's not, those three Ps can help you stay afloat. That's really great. Um, it's interesting. It sounds like um, in all of these sort of topics, there's an element of balance. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that humans, I think it's a great point. I mean, you know, there's, there's um, um, I, I think there's a tendency to, lose some of the subtleties when we try to talk about human behavior or how people succeed. And, and, you know, it ends up being kind of a mix of things. And so, you know, yeah, is it important to have strong cognitive skills? Absolutely. If you want to, you know, especially in the field like medicine or managing complex practices, you have to have a pretty sharp mind. 
But if that's all you have, eh, it's not so good. You have to have some of these emotional skills as well. But if, if only, the, you know, so it's, you got to balance those two. Same thing is true with introversion and extroversion. The same thing is true with, um, you make a very good point about the rejection thing. You know, sometimes when you get rejected, some of it is your fault, you know? And so you have to be hard-headed, you know, you have to be hard-headed enough to know, like, okay, was it, you notice I said, is it entirely your fault? Very few things are entirely your fault, but you have to be able to look for improvement, look for ways to improve without um, getting yourself uh, bogged down by the intense negativity of, of rejection. So it really is this, you know, and it's sort of like our, you know, it's sort of like our bodies in, in some way. And our bodies exist in a state of, you know, homeostasis, in a state of equilibrium, right? You don't want to be too hot. You don't want to be too cold. Um, and I think that's an interesting metaphor for, you know, how to, how to succeed how to flourish really in the long term. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I've got one last question um, from from one of our attendees. Um, of all of your five books, which one do you think serves a practice manager the best in their career development? Huh. Well, that's an interesting question. So I, um, you know what? It really depends on. Um, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a classic. It depends answer. Okay? <laughs> okay. So if you're if you're working at a a very large practice, and a lot of the people there were at you know relatively small practices. If you're in a very very large practice, I would recommend Drive, uh, which is a book about the science of motivation. Uh, if you're at a smaller practice, you know eight people, dozen people or so, I would recommend To Sell as Human which goes through a lot of these things that we were talking about, Shannon, about, you know, how do you uh, present your messages clearly? How do you stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? How do you understand someone else's point of view? So for the small group, smaller groups, I'd go for to sell as human for the larger groups um, with a greater degree of kind of managerial complexity. I'd go for drive. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, to learn more about Daniel's session at MGMA Annual Conference and for more information about some of the topics we spoke about today, check out our episode page at mgma.org slash podcasts. <laughs>